Kia from your Every Nation Southside family here in Papatoitoi, Auckland. You are now listening to a podcast from our church service and we pray that you will be blessed by it. For more information, please visit our Facebook page or feel free to contact our church office. I want to ask this question, what makes you and I different from other animals? If you've ever considered the animal kingdom, you'll probably notice there is a difference between us and other animals. What makes you different to a bird? What makes you different to an insect? What makes you different to a fish? What makes you different to any other kind of mammal on this planet? Well, of course, we know from a Christian perspective what makes you different is that God said, unlike all those other animals, that he made us in his image. And he is a creator, therefore we are a creative creation, if I could put it that way. And in part of being a creature that creates things because our creator creates things, we're made in his image, we do this by using tools. We use it by using technology. In other words, we make things, and in making those things, we make other things to help us make those things. Now, that's a lot of things, but I think you understand what I'm talking about here. You want to make something, so what do you do? You get something to help you make that thing. And that thing that you use to make that thing is a tool or technology. It's something that you produce. Think about this for a second. In our little animal analogy, us versus the rest of the animal kingdom. Sure, you can get some primates, you can get some smart parrots that can take a rock or a piece of stone and they can bash it against a nut or a shell and open it up. In a sense, that's using a tool or a piece of technology. But let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen, it wasn't a primate, a chimpanzee or an ape or a parrot that made the pyramids. Can you see there's a slight difference in scale and extent and difficulty in the task involved? There is a huge difference between you and those other simple tools that are used by those types of creatures. It was humans that built the pyramids, the Eiffel Tower, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Great Wall of China. It's only human beings that create devices to communicate over vast distances that produce artifacts no bigger than your thumb that can store huge amounts of data. It's only human beings that are able to delve into the molecular, thank you, on the front row, molecular world and see microbes and smaller stuff. You say, why are you using the word stuff, Adam? Because I can't think of what it might be that we might be looking at. You'll have to ask the scientists that are here, but also that we can see into the stars, but not just the sun in our sky or the stars that sprinkle the heavens like icing sugar at night, but beyond those stars, beyond what the naked eye can see, we can actually even see outside of our own galaxy now. In the 1920s, they developed a telescope that made it possible to see beyond the Milky Way. And it was then that we discovered that our galaxy was just one of a hundred billion galaxies in our known universe. It's only human beings have done that. And how did we do all of it? Why was all this possible? It was because of technology. It was because of the development of tools to make it possible. Everything from clothing. Clothing is a technology, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. 
Clothing to cell phones, hammers to helicopters, arrows to aircraft, pencil sharpeners to penicillin, typewriters to telescopes. You and I are awash. We're virtually drowning in devices and mechanisms that play a part in how we interact with each other and with the material, physical world that we live in. It's technology, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what we're going to look at over these next two weeks. We're going to explore the idea of technology and God's role in that and his thoughts on that. I want you to turn either in your Bible, your book, which is a form of technology, even in printed form, this is technology, or you may have an electronic device. That's the form of technology you have stored the Word of God on. And if you've done that, I want you to turn quickly with me to Genesis, the second chapter and the eighth verse. It's a short verse. It won't take us long to read it. Genesis 2, verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, we're going to see who has the best form of technology today because we're going to turn to the book of Revelation, the 21st chapter, the first verse. I'm there. Is anyone there on the electronic device yet? Thank you. Old school wins. (laughs) Just saying, ladies and gentlemen, old school wins. You love that phone, don't you? It costs you maybe anywhere up to $1,000 if you've got an iPhone or 300 bucks. But you know what? This bad boy just dealt to you. (laughs) All right, so here we are. We're in the 21st chapter, the first verse. Now I saw, this is John the Revelator. And now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Well, this week we're going to look at the place of technology in God's economy. What does God think about technology, and how does it relate to our faith? Next week, we're going to pick one form of technology, and we're going to delve into it as deeply as I can in next week's sermon and look at its benefits and perhaps its blessings and cursings to us in a modern setting. Because I think all technology has pluses and negatives. It has positives and has blessings and curses. But we're going to see today what God thinks about technology Um, I want to explore our relationship with ourselves and the way we use technology and what it's for. Today I want to talk about the fact that technology is God's idea. You may never have thought of this before. You're so like a fish, uh, a goldfish in 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 a bowl of water, you don't realize that you're in the water. Why? Because you're in the water. It's part of your environment. And you've probably never considered the idea of how does technology, does technology have anything to do with this book? Does technology have anything to do with your creator, your savior, the person whom you love, the person who we've been worshiping this morning, the person we've been singing about, the person whose life we've been commemorating and celebrating? What does he think about technology that we swim in? I want you to know of a fact 
that technology was not Stephen Jobs' idea. It was not Bill Gates' idea. It was not Elon Musk's idea. It was the divine God's idea. The Lord God Almighty had technology in mind at the beginning of the creation. It had, and also that God has given an important role to it in the plans for humanity in general, all of humanity, some seven billion of us on planet Earth today, and for his chosen people, the church. Now, what is technology? Before we do this, we need a kind of a definition, I think, to start with. Technology can be defined as our methods, systems, and devices that change our environment. Commonly, technology refers to tools or the tools that we use in our interaction with people and the material world. I'll read it one more time because this is going to be our important definition. Technology can be defined as methods, systems, and devices that change our environment. Commonly, technology refers to the tools that we use in our interaction with people and the material world. How do we know then that this is part of God's plan for humanity and for us? There are two ways we can discover this, and the Bible expresses this. One is what we call implicit. In other words, it's implied in the text. It doesn't say it outright, but it is the logical conclusion from looking at the story of the Bible. The other is an explicit reference to the ideas around technology in terms of man's role on planet Earth. So one is implicit, the other is explicit. And we're going to start off with the explicit. The explicit is called, let's go back here a little bit, Adam, the grand narrative. It's the grand narrative. It's what theologians call the meta-narrative or the overarching narrative for the world. Now, what does narrative mean? It simply means the story. If you look at the Bible and you think about it from beginning to end, often Christians talk about the meta-narrative, which simply means the big narrative, the big story. If you look at the 66 books in the Bible, it seems like it's all disjointed at first glance. But as you study it, as God reveals it to you, suddenly you start to realize that, in fact, all of these stories are interconnected. They all add up to one big narrative. Some people call it the scarlet thread of the Bible. Have you ever heard that expression, the scarlet thread? It's the story of man's fall, then the coming of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection, and then at the end, the restoration of all things, a new heaven and a new earth. We go from the fall in the Garden of the Eden and the entering of corruption into the world, and then we get right to the end, and it was all brought back to the way God had planned it before the fall. That's the grand scarlet thread of redemption, not just for us, but you could say for planet Earth as well. So that's the meta-narrative, but it's not the only meta-narrative or big story that's in the Bible. It's not the only one. There are a whole lot of other threads. You could think about threads about faithfulness or fatherhood or a whole lot of other things. Holiness are big stories that run through the Bible. But there is another, and it comes down to this idea of where we started from and where we end up in the Bible. 
where we start from and where we end up. You will probably have noticed that in the book of Genesis, and we've touched on this text, that humanity was placed deliberately by God in a specific location. It was a garden. And yet when we get to the end of the story, when God pulls it all together and brings the film to an end and we get the sunset riding off into the distance. There is no more tears. There is no more hunger. There is no more suffering. At that moment, where do we find ourselves? In a city. You see, the grand, one of the grand narratives of the Bible is the movement from the garden to the city, from Genesis through to Revelation. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve find themselves in a divinely prepared natural wilderness. But in Revelation, God's people find themselves in a divinely prepared city. A, so, a city so glorious, the Bible tells us, that it has no need of sun nor moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminates it. The Lamb is its light. Jesus Christ is the light of that city. In other words, we are advancing from a rural, muddy garden to a grand, gold-paved city. I'll say that again. We are moving in God's grand narrative from a rural, muddy garden to a grand, gold-paved city. Now, implicit in this movement from the garden to the city is the development of technology. Why? Because a city like Auckland of a million people requires and can only survive on amazing advances in technology. Infrastructure, roading, wastewater, water for you to drink, electricity. And when you talk about a city, it's what you're really talking about is a collection of technologies that make it possible for people to live away from their rural agrarian backgrounds. You're talking about a place in which technology has advanced so much that people in the countryside are able to produce more food than they need so they can support people who live in a city. That all requires technological advances. Cities arise and are sustained by the use and advancement of technology. Thus, technology is implied in God's overarching Genesis to Revelation, garden to city narrative. It's implicit. The second is what we call our explicit role in this narrative. Not only has God created this narrative, but he's given you, that's right, you sitting here in the pews today, and in fact, other people who aren't even Christians, it's a, it's a mandate to humanity for their role in this narrative of God and a city. Because at the beginning of this whole story, he gave instructions on what we should do with this garden that we've got and this environment or this planet that we've been placed in. And it's very simple, ladies and gentlemen. This is what God said to do. It's so basic. But he said that we were to have babies. That's right. We're to have babies. Book of Genesis. We're to grow food. And we are to take dominion or governorship over the animals and the earth. Now, there's no getting away from this. 
take dominionship over the animals and the earth. Theologians call this the dominion mandate, the dominion. To take dominion over something means to control it, govern it, steward it. Now, this is nicely illustrated in Genesis 2.15. When God takes man and puts him in the Garden of Eden, he gives man this instruction, that he is to tend the garden and he is to keep it. If you're taking down notes, you should write that down. These are the instructions in this baby-making, food-producing, governorship of the animals and the earth. How should we do it? We should do it by tending the earth and by keeping the earth. It's a two-part commission by God in the dominion mandate. Another way to translate tending and keeping is to say to cultivate it and to guard it. So mankind was given these very specific instructions. You are to cultivate, which is, we're going to see means to change, and you are also to guard, preserve, or as the NIV says, to take care of, to take care of. In this way, Adam and Eve were to be gardeners and guardians. Gardeners and guardians. Now, I think you can see that something has gone wrong here over the course of the millennia that followed this event. We, only, we don't have to look too far to see the kind of degradation of our natural environment. And that is because humanity is actually quite good at cultivating, changing, exploiting, and using the elements that God has given him. Now, there's nothing wrong with that because God instructs humanity to do that. But at the same time, man has been charged with protecting, guarding, and caring, and tending for the planet. Now, we see this great here in New Zealand. New Zealand's a prime example of this if we think about New Zealand's dairy industry. We know only too well in our dairy industry that we have cultivated the garden in places like the Taranaki, outside of Auckland and other parts of New Zealand, rural New Zealand, in which we use land and cows to produce fantastic dairy products, ladies and gentlemen. Butter, cheese, milk, cream added to those strawberries is undeniably good. And if you really want to be decadent, just add ice cream. My wife often says, if we're going to have strawberries and cream, you don't need ice cream. But I think if you double up on the cream, what's the problem? <laughs> I, I just don't get it. But it's a true story. Um, but, but you can see what happens here. So we're, in fact, when we do that, as, as Fonterra does and many New Zealand companies do, we're in fact fulfilling God's intention. Now, Fonterra probably doesn't look at it that way. But in fact, Fonterra is doing what the dominion mandate has said that humanity should do. But the danger is when we fail to fence off waterways, for example, and waste from cows pollutes our rivers and lakes, then we have failed to guard our land, keep it, take care of it, or protect it. That's just a little segue in there. I thought I'd put that in there, that we've got these two components of the mandate that we are required to fulfill. But this brings me to where technology comes in all of this, because this grand garden to city narrative and cultivating and guarding in the dominion mandate 
involves a reordering of the natural environment, of the material world. That is the raw materials God provided for us. I like what Tony Ranka had to say on this. He described it this way when he said, Adam's job was to take the raw materials of the earth from the wood of the trees to the rocks of the ground to metal buried deep within the earth and create new things. God likes to create. You and I like to create. Now, God, unlike us, can create something from nothing. We're limited, ladies and gentlemen, in that fact. So God gave all of this to us so that we would have something to create with and be satisfied and content and that need that we have to create things, whether you're a builder, a plumber, whether you're an artist, whether you're a musician, whether you're a writer, to produce things is met. So God has been incredibly merciful to us by providing all the stuff so that we can get fulfillment in this area in our life. God established this idea himself in the creation of Adam and Eve. You know, God in his great power could have spoken Adam into existence. Have you ever considered this? This change in the narrative where God, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and he speaks light into existence. He speaks the earth into existence. He speaks the water into existence. He speaks the stars and the moon into existence, the sun into existence. And then he does something different. And in doing that, he sets a model for humanity on how they should work and reorder the natural world. Have you ever thought about this? That God comes down and he reorders the natural world to create us. In Genesis 2-7, it says that God states that the Lord God for man from the dust of the earth. Wow. In other words, the God who spoke a hundred billion galaxies into existence containing a hundred billion stars decided not to just speak Adam into existence. He comes down to the planet he has made and he gets his hands dirty. He reconstitutes the elements of the ground, earth, dirt, mud, dust. And what was God doing in all of this? He was reorganizing the elemental world to create us. And he took elements from the periodic table. You remember your chem I was terrible at chemistry. I loved chemistry, but I just couldn't do it. It's just my brain is not wired for that type of discipline, even though I find chemistry fascinating. But if you think about the 90 naturally occurring elements on the periodic table, God used 60 of them to create Adam. 60 elements he used to create Adam, and therefore, this is what you are made up of. He reorders these 60 elements to create you and I, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, nitrogen, calcium, phosphorus, these elements all brought together to perform this human being. You know, if you combine oxygen at the right amount with hydrogen at the right amount, you, you know what you get? H2O, water. 60% of your body is made up of water, ladies and gentlemen, just as Adam's body was 60% water all the way back then. 
You know that H2O that's in your body? It functions, it's important for the functioning of the human cells. It's dependent on this. The life-supporting combo of hydrogen and water in just the right amounts helps um, facilitate chemical and metabolic reactions, such as the chemical breakdown of what we eat. Carbon, this amazing substance in coal and in diamonds, ladies and gentlemen, you're 18% carbon. What's carbon used for? It's the building block of your human cells. So God said, I'll take some hydrogen. I'll take some oxygen, I'll grab some carbon. And then he says, you know what, I'm gonna get some calcium and I'm gonna get some phosphorus. Why? Because that's needed for the development and the maintenance of your teeth and your bones. What's going on here? The key point in all this is that God models the practice of reordering the natural world to fulfill his purposes. Cultivating the garden, and cultivating and the garden to city and guarding the earth, how would you do that? It's by reordering, just like I did when I created Adam is what God is saying. And the process by which God reorders these natural elements is unfortunately unknown to us. You know, I've kind of created a visual picture of God choosing these and bringing them all together. We don't know the exact mechanism, but we do know the mechanism God has provided for us to reorder the natural world. How do we fulfill this grand narrative? Well, we do that. To fulfill the grand narrative of garden to city and the dominion mandate of cultivate and guard the earth requires the reordering of the raw materials that God gave us. And this is where technology comes in. You say, Adam, you finally made it there, I have. But now you can see why technology is important theologically. Now, you can think of all the kinds of practical reasons you need technology. But now we've got, we have now got a God reason why technology is important. Because it's part of this mandate, part of this grand narrative. Technology, the methods and the tools, is what humans are to use to cultivate and reorder the raw materials. Why is that? Well, I'm going to tell you why. It's because it enhances humans' natural abilities and strengths. Technology enables and enhances our ability to do this. Think about the very first technology that was given to man by God. Not only was it God's idea, but the first technology that human beings had to make this possible was not something they came up with. It was something God gave them. When Adam was presented with the animals, what did God say to him? You name them, you categorize them. What had God given to Adam? Do you know what anthropologists say is the most significant technological advancement in any culture or society? It's the development of what? Language, the ability to communicate complex ideas between people. The first technology we find recorded in the Bible was given to Adam by God. It is language. You think of all the things that you can accomplish with language, more easily probably to think about how little you could accomplish if you did not have language. No way to communicate with other human beings. How would that limit the advancement from garden to city or the dominion mandate? It would be a huge impediment. God gave Adam language. 
Not only was it the first technology that God gave him, but God gave him a Adam and Eve a technological upgrade. The first upgrade in technology appears in the Garden of Eden. When they fell into sin, Adam and Eve discovered that they were naked. So they covered themselves with clothing. Now it wasn't perhaps the most robust, but it was plant life. God says, you know what? I'm gonna send you out of this garden. And the technology you have may be all right for the garden, but you need something more durable once you leave Eden. So what does he give them? He gives them more durable, stronger animal skins. It's a technological upgrade. Technology, like language and clothing, makes it more easy to fulfill our city to garden to city narrative and cultivating and guarding what God has given us. This is because technology can enhance our bodies dramatically. Technology makes us stronger, see further, hear better, go faster. A microscope enhances our vision to see microbes and a telescope, not only just our stars, but distant galaxies. You see, those natural attributes you have, technology changes. Who knows where Army Bay is? Does anyone know where Army Bay is? Or the Shakespeare Reserve at the end of the Whangapura? Put your hand up if you know where this is so I can see how many of you know. Not too many. It's at the other end of Auckland. <laughs> if you go up State Highway 1 and you get to a place called Silverdale, hope some of you may know where Silverdale is, but it's really just outside of the northern boundaries of Albany. You go another five or ten minutes on State Highway 1 and you hit Silverdale, and then you head out east. And as you head out east on the Great Whangapura Peninsula, there's about 30 to 40,000 people living out there, you get right to the end and there's this beautiful park. It's called the Shakespeare Reserve. It's a gathering place for people over the holidays. Come up and visit sometime. Make sure you come to our house and have a coffee with us. And when you come, but it's quite a distance from here. In fact, it is about 70 to 80 kilometers now, you're probably not thinking that's a big deal. But 70 to 80 kilometers is a considerable distance. In fact, it took me an hour to drive here this morning from home to speak to you today. And it's going to take another hour once we're finished today, sometime 5 o'clock in the afternoon, by the time I finish what I'm about to say, to head home another hour depending on traffic. And of course, if traffic's bad in Auckland, it could be two hours. I want you to think about how long it would have taken before I had a car. You see, a car is an amazing piece of technology. In fact, it's an assemblage of electronics and um, the internal combustion engine. It's got all these minerals in it. It's got steel. It's got copper. It's got rubber. It runs on petrochemicals. It's made in Germany. I mean, who go, go figure? My car is made in a little go German V-dub Golf. And you know what? It carried me from there to here, and I didn't even work up a sweat. We covered 70 kilometers, and I had the aircon on. Well, not just the aircon, it's got this kind of dual climate control. So Sandra can be, as she often wants to be, a little bit cooler or warmer. We've got a variation of about one degree between us. That's why I'm bare. There can be differences over the, the kind of the thickness of the eider down or getting too close. You know, I, I like to be a bit cooler. Uh, uh, Sandra wants a bit warmer. So it is, that's marriage, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but in the car, in the, in the Gulf, the Germans have solved the problem. So she can have the air blasting it here at a certain temperature, and I can have it blasting at me at a different temperature. Sehr good, mein Kinder. Yeah, yeah. Wer sehr good. 
But I want you to think about what it was like for people who came to New Zealand, perhaps at the beginning of the 19th century. Think about the 1800s. So that was the year 1800, and a new settler, and your ship lands in the Whangaparoa, and you get a letter that has taken days to arrive, and it's from a guy down here in South Auckland, which of course didn't exist then, but imagine it did with a church, and it's a man called Pastor Te'ulu, and he's inviting you to come and preach at his church service. Now the letter's taken a long time to get there anyway, and you get this, and you think, how am I going to get there? You know, I did a Google search and I worked out how long it would take to walk here. <laughs> you know how you can have the bus, you can have the car, and you can have someone walking? It would take, they estimate, 17 hours <laughs> for me to walk. And that's, but that's walking on roads and, um, and, and, um, and, of course, with no bridge. There was no bridge, ladies and gentlemen. So we went around out West Auckland, around Henderson, and, and came down here. But if you work it out over how many hours of daylight you have to walk in the year 1800, um, and how much food you would need, roughly about eight meals. It would take three days in 1800 to get from where I live to get here. And it would take eight meals. That's there and back. Do you know how long it's gonna take me today to do all of this and then get home? About five hours. And you know what I'm going to do it on? A bowl of yogurt sprinkled with some almonds with a sliced banana on it. That's what I had for breakfast. And how could I do that, ladies and gentlemen? Get here in one hour? Technology. See, I could go faster than I ever could before. The advent of the automobile. It enhances our natural abilities to do things we could never do before. That's why humans built the pyramids and not a dolphin, a chimpanzee, or a parrot. Because they don't have that technological ability, as cute as some of them may be. And I know many of you like dolphins and unicorns <laughs> and rainbows. Just saying. But maybe that's just Pastor Te'ulu. <laughs> Farming is a good example of this. With our hands alone, we may cultivate a very small plot of land, perhaps sufficient to feed ourselves, if you just had your own hands. But add one implement, just one technological advance, and it enables the feeding of a great number of people. Take, for example, the humble shovel or in this case, spade. Technically speaking, I've got a spade here today for those people who know their technologies. Now, this is a, t this is a, this is a, a piece of technology. But I want you to think about the difference something like this would make to you as a farmer if it was the choice between just you with your hands or just you with this added. Now, this bad boy can do a lot that your hands can't do. Do you realize that humans have some of the weakest claws on the planet, in the animal kingdom? Have you even, even noticed that? Beautiful, aren't they? <laughs> but you scraping in the dirt and the rocks splits them, destroys them. You're not built like a, a dog with those claws that enable you to dig or some kind of animal that's adapted to that sort of, you know, is, is made in that way. Your hands themselves, mine are academic, so they are lily white and soft. But even with calluses, 
There is a limit to what your hands can, in fact, do by themselves. But think about what you can do with one of these bad boys. You know who the strongest man is on planet Earth? It's this guy here. This guy here. He's from Iceland. He is six foot nine in height. Wow. Six foot nine. He's tall. He is 190 kgs in weight. And he probably eats enough calories a day to feed half a dozen villages in Africa. No kidding, he probably eats over 6,000 6, calories a day, maybe more. He eats a lot. I present the other person, yours truly. <laughs> I am five foot, 11 and a quarter inches. <laughs> I weigh, when I'm wet, 70 kgs. <laughs> Now, take this fine specimen of a man and this scrawny, skinny, pathetic Palangi from Glenfield and put him in a competition with this guy. You know, this guy can lift. He, he, he's the strongest man in the world in 2018 because he did a lift known as the, um, it's called the Elephant, Elephant Bar Deadlift which tells you how big it is, ladies and gentlemen, because it obviously implies that only an elephant can lift this. It was over 400, I think, what has we got here? 472 kgs. Man, I'm lucky if I can lift a pound of butter from the fridge. Oh my gosh! Are they making this butter heavy now? I mean, somebody's adding it up. But I tell you what, I take this big guy on. Ask us to dig a hole. 10 by 10 feet, and he has to do it with his bare hands, and I get this bad boy. You think about hard clay earth, and your ability, no matter even if you're the strongest man, and you're from Iceland, and you're descended from Vikings, <laughs> and you can do an elephant deadlift, whatever that is, think of your hands trying to dig through that clay and the skinny Palangi from Glenfield has the shovel. One simple piece of technology in which using it, I have used one before, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. That's right. And then in here, dig in, jump on it, move it, loosen it, and before you know it, I'm getting in there digging away. Meanwhile, the Viking, he's scrambling around trying to do it. Can you see the difference? one piece of technology makes to what can be achieved? You see, the humble shovel is a very simple piece of technology, but it allows us to reorder the earth to cope. By the way, if he was able to dig faster than me, which I don't believe so, there are other things a shovel can be used for. <laughs> okay. I wouldn't want to hurt anyone long term, but to win the competition... It allows us to reorder the raw materials of the earth, to cultivate more land by clearing it, preparing it, planting it, tending it, and then, of course, irrigating it. All of those things can be done with a shovel far more efficiently than you could ever do just with your bare hands. This, of course, was followed by a plow, the next major technological development. Then the harnessing of domestic animals, 
horses, or more in particular, oxen. And then the internal combustion engine was invented in the 19th century. And this was placed on a vehicle called a tractor, which now pulls a metal plow. Because of these technological advances, more of the world is cultivated in line with God's mandate than ever before. And more people live in cities than have ever lived in cities in the entire human history. Why? Because of technology, the reordering of the natural world, our grand garden to city narrative, and our dominion mandate to cultivate and to guard the earth. Technology was God's idea. Humans have a tendency to abuse it, but used correctly, it produces untold benefits, not just for the believers of God, but it's really an example of God's general grace to humanity and his creation. Lord, we thank you for your word and the benefits you give us through technology. We thank you that you have given us this great story that we are part of. Help us, Lord, not just to be cultivators, which is a great and good thing to do, but help us also to be guardians of what you've given us, to care for it. We thank you for this mandate, Lord Jesus. Help us to be good stewards of it in the name of the Lord. And everybody said, Amen.